This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining me. So the two Kogonada projects I've seen recently, his film After Yang that he wrote and directed, and the Apple TV series Pachinko for which he directed four episodes kind of took me by surprise. And what I mean is how much they really affected me to the core in kind of unexpected ways. And so did our conversation. We talk about movies, feeling displaced, imperfect memories, life, Really, what it means to be human. It was really great. And I think maybe I need to talk to him like once a week or something now. Koganada, whose name is a pseudonym, was born in Korea and immigrated to the U.S. with his family as a young child and grew up in the Midwest. He's a true cineast and film lover. He started making video essays, analyzing cinema, themes, and styles. They are on Wes Anderson, Hitchcock, Breaking Bad, to name a few. And they made him a superstar among cinephiles and would eventually lead him to his critically acclaimed directorial debut feature, Columbus. His new film, After Yang, is a soft emotional sci-fi set in the near future. Colin Farrell plays Jake, a husband and father who's kind of struggling on a personal level to feel present with his wife Kira and adopted daughter Mika. They have a lifelike robot named Yang, here called Technosapien. Yang was bought to teach Mika about her Chinese heritage, and when we come into the film, we understand that Yang is really a part of the family, a brother figure to Mika. When he breaks down, Mika is devastated, and the family really feels the loss. On his mission to fix him, Jake discovers through Yang's recordings, his memories, so to speak, what he himself has been missing, the precious moments, being present, being human. Koganada has also directed four episodes of the incredible TV series Pachinko, a gripping multi-generational saga that follows Korean immigrants from 1910 to the late 80s. A story that Koganada told me is so personal to him as it intersects with so much of his own family's story. Please enjoy our conversation. And first, here is After Yang. Come on, Yang. What are you doing? Come on. What happened to Yang? I don't know. He shut down last night. He won't restart. Has this happened before? No. If we can't get Yang fixed, we're not gonna buy another sibling for Mika. It is an interior core problem. I need your permission to break open the core. We've always known that some bots are equipped with spyware. You might not want this bot in your house anymore. I wish I had a real memory. What do you mean? Hi, Christina. Hi, I'm so honored to meet you. Thank you for your films and your visual essays. I've watched them a lot. When I was preparing to talk to you about After Yang, I came to think about something that one of your video essay subjects, Jean-Luc Godard, said 
he said, a story should have a beginning, a middle, an end, but not necessarily in that order, right? <laughs> I um, and I think your starting point in the movie is so interesting where this marriage is. Maybe you could describe where Jake and Kara are in their marriage when we start the movie. Oh, God, I'm so glad you asked that because I don't think anyone has talked about it, but it was such an important part. I mean, I, I do think that it's it's at a critical state. You know, I think that um, they're, they're, it's, you know, I, we were always talking about it and we wanted it to be subtle. We didn't want it to be like that. But, but underneath all of it, you know, it felt to us that they were on the verge of, um, you know, possibly separating that there was something about uh, the state of uh, Jake, who was really struggling with uh, feeling disconnected. And this, this passion that he had for T had become a real burden, and he was it had become a job, and he was struggling with it. And meanwhile, his wife was kind of doing really well, you know, that that she was. Um, and, and then obviously, too, um, in regard to the way they were thinking about their daughter, you know, I'm married, we had kids, uh, we were just had went past that part of our lives. And, you know, if there was ever tension in our, our marriage, it's like how you were raising your kids and, and the oh, difference yeah. of opinion and, and all of that, you know, and so everyone uh, in my in my producers who had been uh, married and raising kids, we all kind of understood the lines underneath that, that was just very relevant in all of our lives. And so yeah, and, you know, I certainly had felt that too, like, oh, my God, we're, struggling so much, you know, uh, as parents of our views of, of raising kids and where we are in our lives at career wise, our, our own sense of happiness and, and all of that. So yeah, that's where um, we felt that it was starting with this real potential crisis, you know, that, and, and that yeah. suddenly the simple task of fixing Yang was going to potentially uh, Really yeah yeah well it, i think it becomes the answer but it could have also exposed and amplified the problem you know but fortunately i think for for jake in trying to fix yang there's some fixing that's happening in his own being you know? it's such an interesting place to start because usually you start at the beginning of a relationship or at the end and this feels very much sort of in the middle going back to godard but and yes he realizes through yang that he has missed uh, he's not been present for his daughter, I, I would say, that he's missed in between the spaces. Um, and that guilt as a parent that follows you around, that you can't, that you should be present at certain moments. Did anything change for you as a parent in the process of thinking about this film? Sure, yeah. And I mean, God, I've just been, you know, thinking about that even more, like, because I felt, you know, that like, I have always felt like I will be defined by how I am as a father more than a filmmaker for me personally, that if I make films that are acclaimed, but I'm a shitty father, that I will uh, feel um, that I've, uh, you know, I, yeah, I would judge myself harshly about that, you know, so I've always felt like present sort of hands on, but God, you know, there's also a difference between being present and present present, you know, like mm -hmm. really like, not just like working on my script and being near my kids, but, you know, knowing and, and being so aware of their lives. And I've really, yeah, I mean, I think it has, I think it has made me ask even deeper questions about that, you know, and I, I think that um, it is a big question in this film. And this is so lovely because this is the first time I've had this conversation about this film, but it was so much also 
underneath the surface of this film, what were these larger questions of being present? And I think I think Jake is also like recognizing that so much of life is happening and passing before him and certainly Mika being the primary thing. But, uh, you know, even appreciating a tree and just these things that we can get so caught up in our daily life and and first and foremost, the, the guilt uh, and responsibility that we have for our children. But um so many things, you know, that we start losing focus. And I think a child can really see when someone is really seeing them to be seen in those small things. I think um, as a parent, you just realize, oh, I'm in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And they are like, I think equally what, what is, uh, you know, starting in the middle of this family, you know, you definitely sense that the, 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 the wife has, is losing patience with her husband Mm -hmm. who's not present, not there. And I, th- I think you feel that the daughter is also about to like lose trust in her father, you know, that there's, a, that she's very aware that her father is not, you know, is sort of um, uh, not present as well. And so I do think it's a critical time for Jake, you know, that he's about to lose um, the, the, the people he, he loves, you know, that, but he's, he's just so occupied and consumed with his own um, struggles. Um, I heard one, someone talk about the movie. It was an excellent review, but they, they said that they thought they were bad parents for getting Yang to teach Mika <laughs> about her Chinese heritage. And, and I didn't think, I mean, I think the fact that maybe he wasn't emotionally present enough to see how this was affecting her is one thing, but I didn't think it was bad parenting to that. I remember when my son when my, my mother was from Spain and I didn't oh, really, wow. couldn't really teach them Spanish because we were mm-hmm. living in the States and all. And he once came to me and he said, why didn't you really teach me Spanish? And I realized I could, should have done yeah. that, you know? Yeah, no, same too. You know, mm-hmm. my, my parents speak Korean and Japanese and, and they were so busy and we've asked them the same question. You know, we, we, we know a, a bit of it and same with my kids. And I, you know, jokingly, I think a lot of parents who've seen this and or friends of mine, they'd be like, oh, God, I, I wish we could hire a yeah, you know, I wish we could <laughs> for, for all kinds of reasons. But I do think, yeah, it's about uh, not um, forfeiting your responsibilities through whether it's, a, you know, um, a nanny or even a school. You know, we I just did a Q&A with John Cho and he was saying, you know, the same thing that you immediately see this and think you have a kind of judgment and then you realize, oh, you know, he was like, oh, I was sent to Korean school every Saturday, which is a supplement to what a parent, Mm -hmm. you know, can do. So I think parents are always trying to help their kids find uh, ways for them to learn important things. And we use devices all the time. You know, I'm sure there uh, the, I, how many parents use iPads? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 So there's always a balance in trying to figure that out. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com.
the future world or the near future world that you depict here design wise it has a softness to it it's not the metallic sci-fi that we're maybe more used to seeing what are some of the elements of design that you wanted to bring out sort of the values or principles of this society that they're living in yeah no and I've, I've said before that it, it it really to me is like a society that has been humbled by the neglect uh, of the past and and you know we when I was talking to the designers you know we talked about some catastrophe that had happened on earth that had made um you know made it undeniable that 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 uh society had to rethink the way it was built and we imagined like you know I've, i had read reports about what they imagined with the first wave of a crisis that cities will have to migrate and new cities will have to be formed uh in places that are uh, inhabitable and yeah so that's how we kind of built the city with this idea that what if nature had to be uh integrated for the sake of humankind um and and in that we created a much more organic future a soft future and and the textures of that future were really important you know um space and design for me i matter and not just as a background or just as something uh, pretty but i i think for me just in my own life you know i'm i'm i feel so shaped by space and design and i i think it has its own story to tell so that was part of the story we wanted to tell through through the design of the house and and even the auto car and the tunnels and all of that mm -hmm. yeah houses and and architecture featured in in your film very much a lot of my memories many different houses from my growing up in many different countries they represent a lot of feelings some very good some very bad I, you know they're just it's yeah. just innately visceral one of the things about maybe not feeling at home what can escape into movies which is something i did in tv and i have a feeling that you maybe did as well your parents met at the movies i don't exactly know what the story is did they meet at the movies or or through movies yeah, no. or what yeah i think that was their, their first date and you know my i think my mom was um you know you know back then they they, they tried to arranged marriages too. And I think that the family had wanted her to uh, marry this minister. And she was, uh, I, I only found out much later that she was a deep cinephile and that her father used to joke that, oh, you you need to marry uh, someone who owns a theater because that's all you want to do is go to the <laughs> movie. And, and then um, my uh father you know was sent a photo of my mom from her his uh, older brother and kind of fell in love with her on on you know the spot and went came went to uh, where she was. And anyways, their first date was at the movie theater. And my dad equally loved movies and was making her laugh during the film, you know, by just like his, you know, comments. And yeah, I think right then and there, she knew that she didn't, you know, that this was the kind of man she wanted to marry. So it was very romantic for that time period, because often, you know, it was arranged and they really fell in love. Um, but it was through the, their mutual love for movies and, and that space. And do you yeah. think that that's affected you? I think so, you know, and it's funny because, um, you know, my own sense of my identity, certainly as I get older and know more about their stories has really affected me. But I, for the longest time, you know, we were an immigrant family. They were just working hard every day and I didn't have these conversations with them. I mean, I had time with them, but, you know, in, in Asian culture too, parents tend to 
be very protective of their uh, of their stories and their lives. And it wasn't until I was older that I, I started really asking them and realizing that my family and even my uncles, you know, that they, uh, I had a real sense of, you know, like there's a lot of cinephilia in my family. And I, I have a story that I was uh, wa- watching uh, Alain Delon in a, um, uh, in a uh, it must have been an Antonioni, Antonioni film. And um, my mom, who, you know, I had no idea she was a cinephile then. And she spoke very broken English. And she said, oh, that's Alain Delon. And I was like, you know, it was so wow, surprising. Yeah. <laughs> Other, you know, I didn't even understand, you know, suddenly these worlds had come together. And it really started, you know, this conversation. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's some, yeah. something so unexpected that can change yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. And I, I remember when I was watching Thid Ren Line, Terrence Malick, and she was sort of in the background watching it. And then afterwards, she said she just had this comment that it. she compared it to this moment when she was dealing with real grief, a real loss of... Um, you know, a real personal loss. And she said, you know, I, I stared at the clock and it felt as if time had stopped, you know, and, mm-hmm. and she was comparing Thin Red Line to the sort of that, that wow. temporal feeling of time stopping. And I was just, again, you know, this, my mom, who's just like constantly working, having th- this kind of insight into film and cinema was really, um, yeah, it was really beautiful. You know, it's amazing how that something like that can really bring us together where you, you don't, yeah. can't maybe talk about those things until you meet in the middle. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's so, it's so true. Yeah, it's so true. You've talked about that Yang is a construct of Asianness. Um, yeah. Could you explain yeah. a little what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think when I was digging into the short story, um, and you know, the author is su- such a lovely man and so such a great writer. He, but he is an Asian, and for me, r- reading about an Asian robot, you know, once you scratch the surface, you realize oh, he's not Asian, he's manufactured to uh, to be Asian, he's manufactured to know Asian facts and to present as Asian, but what would make him Asian, you know? And that question really resonated with me because, you know, it's a, fu- it's a question I've asked myself as uh, someone who has been dislocated and displaced. It sounds like you understand that experience. And, you know, there are a group of us who are like, a part of a diaspora who are dislocated from the the geography and history of their culture and they're constantly trying to figure out who they are um culturally ethnically and even as human beings and what i have realized is that so much of my sense of being asian is a construct you know it's it's mm-hmm. it's both mediated it's both the way i'm perceived as asian and what people bring into that perception but also the way i uh assess my own Asianness, and that construct of Asianness versus let's say if, if I was born and raised in Korea um, that there would just be something intrinsic it would almost feel you know na- natural but when you're outside of that um, and I th- I'm sure that Asians feel that too you know because we're now a global society but I mm-hmm. think it's a little bit more um, acute in those who are dislocated to try to understand what that is. And I think a lot of us Asians, you know, talking to fellow uh, Asians in the diaspora, we are always judging ourselves of feeling not Asian enough, feeling too Asian. And, you know, and this is, um, that construct is something that was fascinating to me in, in Yang and gave me a different way of thinking. The, the, the sci-fi space gave me a different way of actually thinking through that, that ongoing struggle. 
Do you think that this generation that we're moving forward in being able to think about that and talk about things like that? I think so. Yeah. And I also think that it is a part of the modern condition. I don't think it's exclusive to Asians or any uh, ethnicity that this feeling of dislocation, I think even, you know, when I was in Asia or America, you know, I just think it, we're, we're living in fragmented times. And so I think trying to understand who you are and the context of what makes you who you are is, um, is more difficult, you know, because mm. things are changing at such a rapid pace. Uh, My God, my son and I were just looking at pictures of people fleeing. Um, yeah. In the invasion, you know, the, the amount of displaced people and what yeah. that culture means and what you, can you come back to it or not come back to it. You know, yeah. something we've talking about. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, my my oldest is reading the you know newspaper every day. He's very interested in that as well. And um, yeah, so I, I think it's going to be more of a it is and has been since the 20th century and, and even before a, a, a reality, um, how we cope with it and how we kind of understand who we are. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to be any easier, but I think it's 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 uh, as significant as ever, you know, and more relevant as ever. Yeah. So Yang really changes Jake and, and it's unexpected in life meeting that you didn't think can change you. And sometimes the person that changes you doesn't even realize that they changed you. Um, I was wondering if you'd had any meeting that you can remember that really can feel that changed me in the moment. Yeah. Like you mean like encounters with other people? Or... Yeah. Anything that comes to mind that really. Certainly the the films of Ozu were, were almost mm -hmm. like unpacking a world to me because I, I think I was feeling very disconnected. I, I loved French films and European films and and then you know and then I um discovered Asian cinema and there's certain like Kurosawa I was familiar with uh certain Asian cinema but then when I discovered Ozu there was just some fundamental I mean in many ways I, I've never made this comparison with after Yang but in many ways it had that effect of discovery and mystery and all, because I didn't even understand why it was so compelling to me but it resonated it felt like home in a way like there was some way that I was raised with my parents and my father had grown up in Japan and there was just some element to it that felt so deep and then my sense of like what I'm paying attention, you know, there there's such a value in his films for everyday life and family and time itself. And all of that was so like, you know, those early days of me trying to understand why Ozu was getting under my skin and why he was so was staying with me because I wasn't initially impressed. It wasn't as if I thought, oh, this is a masterpiece. Really? I would watch it. And then I would walk away from it thinking that is so different. I couldn't get my mind around it. And I thought, oh, maybe it's not even, you know, what how you judge a film is always changing. And at that point, I didn't have the language to even judge that film. But it was undeniable that I couldn't get it out of my, my system. Like, you know, uh, and I would watch other films and big films and dramatic films. But I would always like think about the feeling of Ozu. And, I, and it, it really was, you know, it was a real profound moment for me. I have to talk a little bit about memory because it's such an mm -hmm. incredible part of your movie, which you show, you know, in the repetition of certain lines, for example, how elusive it is. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking that, you know, my child can remind me sometimes that, you know, we can take a 
for me just a regular day in the park to get out a bit and then he'll have a memory of that day which is incredibly impactful and for me mm -hmm. it was like really I thought we were just having a day in the park but there was someone he saw or something I think there's a different type of memory that children have mm -hmm. um, than we do as adults okay. have you thought anything about that yeah that's so great I think you're right I think I think the temporality is so fundamentally different yes. because we're so occupied my wife told me this great story where she remembered fondly about this uh this whole day that she had with her father and they had packed a lunch and they took this long hike and then they they stopped and, and it was just always so magical for her and then uh she talked to her father um when she was much older we had been married and she was like do you remember that day and and he and he's like oh yeah it was like a 20 minute walk you know yeah, exactly yeah he said it was a 20 minute walk and we just you quickly said let's eat our sandwiches so we ate our sandwiches and then we came back and in her mind it had lasted a day it was like a day i think that's so incredible and beautiful and i love that it about a bit him. sad though that that we as the adults don't yeah. see that incredible yeah. moment yeah. that they're having yeah well, it feels that, you know, like I think, God, the summers when I was a kid and, and even now childhood is so formidable as adults, it, it dominates your your sense of self. But, you know, when you're raising kids, it just goes by so fast, yes. you know, like the summer just goes. And for them, I'm sure it feels like it's a lifetime. But the one thing I've recently, you know, as a, a parent, you know, I often have try to rec you try to record everything uh you know these these memories and then they just become these things that you can recall you know you know precisely but i have tried to give that up a little bit because i think there is something about the human memory that can that does something to those experiences that it expands does. it that that changes it that you know i think even that, that's what i love about the human memories and after yang versus and i love yang's memories too but that repetition and you can tell that they're trying to recall yang and it's almost becoming more intimate and sweet and and even sad and and i i i love that about human memory and that it it has that ability to to reshape that past in in really maybe beautiful ways and sometimes bitter ways but we lose something when it just becomes something concrete that we we right. view. you know we, we lose something um so anyways i mean i love having you know i have a, a phone full of of them but i, I also yeah but there's it. something there's you know there's smells there's something very visceral about the human yeah. memory that that is more 3d <laughs> so to speak yeah, than, than, right. than just what you have on your phone but before i, I let you go can i know that you're doing pachinko now but can you talk a little bit about this yeah, I mean, it was, uh, wow, it took about a year. Uh, it was in the height of the pandemic. But that story is, uh, you know, it's very much intersects our family story. You know, it's about Koreans who um, ultimately had to move to Japan and, and kind of create an identity. And it's really about generations of a family like family survival and it's often women you know in, in the Korean world who are, are also the the kind of backbone of that, which is so true. And, you know, my own father had, has had such a complicated history uh, uh, because um, being Korean and also being Japanese in many ways really defined him. So when that opportunity came, you know, it, it was really scary for me, honestly. I didn't know if I could do it or, you know, um, just because it was so personal and, and it's different. But uh, I'm so glad, you know, that it 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 um i was a part of it i feel very honored you know it's really the vision of uh the 
the, the showrunner Suhu, who is that that kind of Sanja, who's the main character in, in the uh, the film, but she was really the person who championed this for years before I was even a part of it. So um, yeah, I'm excited for people to see. It. I'm so excited for my parents to see it too. You know, they speak it's in three languages. They speak all oh, of them, wow. so they're going to be one of the few people who don't need the subtitles for any of that. And I'm just very Amazing. excited for them to get to experience it. Yeah. And people like us, we don't need to walk in our family's shadows. And you said that it was frightening to do it after you had, how did it change you, so to speak? Oh, God, you know, I think it, well, you know, in some ways it made me realize my identity as being a part of the diaspora, you know, there were times when I was in Korea that I felt as um, outside as when I'm in America, you know, that uh, and being telling the story that was very close to me. But, you know, if you live a life again in that sort of constant dislocation, you know, you're always in between worlds. But I have really learned to love, you know, find real value in that in the same way that you talked earlier about in between spaces and in between mm -hmm. time, you know, that can when you're younger, that can feel like the problem that can feel like a crisis. And as you get older, you know, it can feel like a place of being, you know, it can feel like, oh, there's some comfort and other and then you find other people, you know, I feel like, oh, I could talk to you forever, because I know that there's some shared experiences, you know, that uh, of and, and I have that with other people too, who, you know, that you do have your own community and, and, and it's different, you know, but you can, you know, um, yeah, you can find comfort there as well. And, and, and I'm, I'm still, I, I, I'm, I'm still processing all of that. You know, I, I don't, yeah. I don't know fully what that means, but I'm processing it. I was really curious about the fact that you spent so much time with these amazing video essays and you really mm -hmm. um, have thought about other filmmakers, you know, theories and works and, you know, everything. Um, when you started directing yourself, did this mm -hmm. hinder you or hamper you? I mean, how much do you think about other people's oh, yeah, yeah. work and yours? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it really, and I, I, I say this often, and it's not, it's not to, for any sort of false humility, but it, it was really humbling. You know, it's, it's humbling to, it's one thing to have theories about things. It's one thing to have an idea about the craft that you're, you know, um, processing and critiquing. And it's another thing to be in the middle of it. And you realize, you know, um, once you are, the person making those decisions with all kinds of pressure and also um you know that our craft happens to be a timed event you know every day there's a clock ticking and it's not like painting where you can just kind of keep going um and it's not even like video essay making where i kind of was just by myself and i had all the time in the world to to play with this um footage when you're actually shooting um you know there there are just so many elements and it was really humbling to realize the the complexity of this craft but it was also really you know i never felt more um myself i mean i, I was very surprised at how comfortable and fulfilling it was to be in that space you know because yeah. i think 
in my life, I've always thought about decisions and what I, you know, the, the process of decisions is aesthetically, especially. So when all of those questions were coming to me, it really fulfilled this part of my mind that has always been activated. Oh, that's so gratifying. Yeah. So it really was, um, I couldn't explain it. I didn't even realize how, how, how fulfilling it would be, but it, yeah, it was really lovely. If I, if you were going to sit down and do Columbus and after Yang in a video essay, oh. um, what are the things you would, <laughs> you would. Oh my God. I mean, I wouldn't do it. I mean, um, yeah, I, I, that's, that's, I could, yeah, I, that would be painful. It would be painful. Okay. Who would you want to do it? Oh my Another God. Break. That would be in there again, painful. It would be painful. Uh, you know, I, um, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I maybe maybe I would say to that person or to, even to myself that you should wait for a few more films, you know, that this person is still discovering and and working on 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 his own sensibilities, you know. And so maybe I would feel like it was premature that I I still have more to learn and and uh you know more to prove you know i think well you really certainly um meant something to me very much it really uh -huh. removed me in, in in ways and i have to i mean we have very different uh, backgrounds but at the same time very much the same so um yeah, but thank that. you very much for this conversation and for your time i really oh, thank you it. yeah it was a, such a great conversation thank you so much Thanks so much to Koganada. So depending on where you are in the world, look out for After Yang. It's in theaters and on Showtime in the U.S. It'll be in theaters in Sweden this fall. And Pachinko premieres on Apple TV on March 25th. This is Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Right, you think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, right.